politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow Paul Revere's and Minutemen to the Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house Friday, end of the week, April 24th. And I am extremely weary uh, from fighting, but now is not the time to let up. Now is the time to double down. Rebellion is in the air. It's just going to become a little bit harder than we thought it would be. Um, Man, am I tired. I'm just telling you, it's really weird doing this later in your 30s and in your 20s. When you have a kid, but this time have three boys in unprecedented times at home all day. So typically what I did during the last kid is, you know, I just kind of slept through it at night and my wife had to deal with it just because I'm working and she wasn't and she had the ability to sleep during the day. But now they're home. (laughs) So what do you do? So I've been trying to help out. Um, Obviously, I can't feed the baby, but uh, change the diaper and everything and just getting up a few times a night makes me crazy. So I could barely think, which is probably better Otherwise, I would blow a gasket today like I did yesterday. Um, What do we have here? We're opening up a consulate in Greenland for the first time in 70 years. You know what? Maybe we need to move to Greenland. Really, where are we going to go? Name me one red state in this country. Name me one state where there is liberty and freedom for peaceful people and the rule of law applied against those who will seek to harm others as emphatically as you have anarchy and tyranny in the blue states. Because I don't, I don't see that. When Sam Adams said during the revolution that this will determine whether there is one place on earth that's an asylum for civil and religious liberty, we don't have that today. We don't have that. So where do we go? Where do we go when all of the liberty-minded Americans put their eggs in one basket named Donald J. Trump, and every day at that stupid press conference, he digs his grave even deeper. So after doing a fake immigration moratorium, after demanding that liberal governors open up, and then when Brian Kemp opens up, he trashes him. Yesterday, he was back at it, saying, we're going to wind up doing lockdown through the summer. What am I supposed to do with that? See, what this man is doing is incurring the worst of all worlds. He's eliciting the most aggressive mobilization of the left as if he were like you and me, but then he does the opposite, so we get the worst of everything. And politically, it's stupid. His numbers are tanking. At some point, you can't say all the polls are fake, showing Biden ahead in every single state. You, he will never win an election like this because, think about it, now we're saying, no, no, the polls show people want lockdown. They just care about the virus. They don't care about anything else. Well, I guarantee you come November, that, that won't be the case. And he will get blamed for it. That's the thing. He's perceived as being more like against the lockdown, but then he's not doing it and then comes back and agrees with the left. So it validates what the left is doing. And the public is saying, well, you're not showing me another vision. And you're just coming late to what the Democrats are trying to do and just do it a little bit less enthusiastically. Where's the winning equation there? 
And then, folks, at some point, it's got to be beyond about the next election. Frankly, I don't give a damn about the election. Frankly, we are suffering and incurring the worst nightmare of policies that we would have ever dreamt of under any Democrat. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Oh my gosh, imagine if Bernie were president. Yeah, I get it, but it wouldn't have been this bad. (laughs) This is nuts. And the fact that it's incurring under Trump, and Trump is now encouraging it, rather than fighting it, it puts us all in an awkward position. And it ensures that there's no rebellion. I mean, could you imagine if you had a Democrat president now? The Republican governors, the Republican members of Congress would just openly rebel against it. Now, they're going along with it. Think about that very carefully. We're getting the worst of all liabilities. But yesterday, the House passes this stupid bill, shovels more money into incentivizing the shutdown. That's what it does. The PPP, everyone in the country is talking about the PPP. Like a bunch of servile puppy dogs now. See, they shoveled so much money at the states now. Emergency funding. You know what they're doing in my area? I'm wondering if this is in your area as well. So all of a sudden, some local restaurants in the zip code, a few of them are offering free, I'm not kidding you, free breakfast, lunch, and supper. And I was thinking, well, well, how does that work? I mean, they're they're dying. They don't have any money. You know, they they don't they couldn't afford that all year round under normal circumstances. So what's happening now? What is happening now? And then I realized, well, they're doing it for kids. It's like if you have kids in the car, they'll drop it into your car. You, you drive by. And I'm thinking, where is this coming from? And then I realized it's obviously coming from the federal bill, but it was funneled to the states. It's not a program you're going to find written in the bill, but the states basically could do what they want with it. So now you have, in my area, these middle-income moms it's not like they can't afford lunch. Give me a break. Of course they can. They're looking for an activity with the kids. And now, oh yeah, free free food always tastes good. Always tastes better. But you know what? What they don't realize is very soon, that is all you will be left with. A line to get on government meals when you have no other option. That's what, the, that's what they're doing. They're buying people off, gradually sucking them in to the tyranny. And that's the thing. One member of Congress told me his wife was watching the debate yesterday and just she just couldn't handle the Democrats, so turned off the sound, muted the TV when the Democrats were talking, and then would turn the sound back on when the Republicans were talking. And she was like, wait a minute, the Republicans sound like the Democrats. Until you got to Andy Biggs and a few others. And it has another $11 billion in there to spy on us. You understand when they say coronavirus, well, that sounds very good. We want to treat coronavirus, right? But it's this massive surveillance state of this contact tracing. It's what I wrote about today from Lockdown Larry, the Maryland governor, who's the president, whatever, the chairman of the National Governors Association, came out with his plan, 38-page plan, and it's all about we're going to do lockdown forever. You have to apply as a business to open. You have to, we have to investigate your criterion. We're going to investigate every person, every business. 
hire 100,000 government workers to do contact tracing. And it's, it's literally mentally ill. How do you do contact tracing when we now know from yesterday's survey of New York City, 21.2% just in the New York City area have it? Contact tracing, theoretically, is something you can do, like in Taiwan, when it just started, it's small, it's isolated, it hasn't spread yet, so you want to track it. How do you track something that is spread among tens of millions of people? I mean, it's first grade math. But this is what we're up against. This is what we're up against. So we're going to have a very special guest on in a couple moments, Dr. Scott Atlas. Some of you saw him on Steve Dace's show yesterday uh, from Stanford. We're going to ask some of the more scientific questions about the behavior of the virus and the strategy behind lockdown. Um, Just before I bring him on, I want to clarify one thing. Part of my brain being frozen is I'm just not operating at full capacity. So I had a little bit of a brain freeze, kind of like a Rick Perry debate moment yesterday when I was talking about the emissions. Um, So I was making the point, this meteorologist in my area said that you would expect, based on what we're always told, that human emissions commit... Uh, contribute inexorably to so much uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, you would expect the levels to have plummeted over the last six weeks, given that we've basically had a nuclear winter on all productivity. And yet, at the Hawaii station, the numbers have not gone down at all. It actually went up slightly. And I was trying to make the stronger case of you know the spring and leaves on the trees. And I... I my point is true. I just said the opposite thing wrongly. Obviously, the leaves, I, I think I was saying the leaves emit CO2. No, the leaves suck suck it out. So the point is, you would expect even less carbon in the air because not only are the emissions lower, but also this time of year, with the leaves growing from, you know, since the reading in March until April, you'd expect the CO2 readings to go down even more. But yet they haven't. So it's just something very, a very important observation, something we want to watch as time goes on. So folks, in that vein, I want to move on to our special guest today. You see, one of the things that really bothers me about what's going on is in addition to all of the collateral damage from the shutdown, Everything we're talking about, certainly the economic damage, the mental health damage, um, the jobs that will be lost forever, the small businesses that will be lost forever, the medical care, critical medical care that is lost, the furloughing of medical professionals, the amount of people who are going to die just from that. Um, If you think about it, just today, the Mayo Clinic announced 30,000 employees will be furloughed in this great prestigious Uh, medical system that's huge but what if what if after all that we're not even saving more lives and in fact what we're doing is counterintuitive to getting rid of the COVID-19 coronavirus in other words who's to say that the lockdown is even helping there's a lot of debate well are the lives worth the collateral damage but what if it's worse than that What if, even if you focus like a laser beam just on coronavirus and forget everything else, every other medical problem, every other economic problem, and you just say, hey, 
I'm going to solve this. Who says that is the best solution? So yesterday, thehill.com had an article from Dr. Scott Atlas, MD. He's a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. I have a lot of friends there. He's a former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University's Medical Center. He had an article out there in thehill.com, and I give them credit for actually publishing it, not censoring it. The data is in, stop the panic, and end the total isolation. And he gives five important data points, five important points, and that was the most trending article on on thehill.com yesterday. He was on my colleague Steve Dace's show on the Blaze TV app, so make sure you go back and listen to yesterday's show of, of Steve Dace's show. But I figured I'd get him on our show today and follow up with some of those very important points. Hey, Dr. Atlas, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, glad to be here. All righty. Well, I know you're you're stuck at home like, like many of us are. And uh, while you're listening to this, while you're gathering all this data, what I find fascinating is since your article came out, there was a pretty big piece of news that I'm kind of shocked wasn't really the headline news yesterday. Uh, Governor Cuomo from New York announced that they conducted a serology study of antibodies in New York City as well as New York State. And let's just focus on the city. They found that 21.2% had the antibodies. Isn't that a game changer? Well, I think it's a, it's eye-opening and underscores a, a couple of very important points. Number one, many people have the infection and never had symptoms. And we know this from all kinds of studies, including the original data that somehow wasn't really uh, talked about on the princess uh a diamond princess ship, that 50% of people are asymptomatic who have infections. They don't even know it. Uh, but that's good, as I keep saying, because A, most people that get it are not going to have a serious problem. B, that is exactly what we need. We need many, many people, more than 50%, it is estimated, to have immunity. And the way you get immunity is to get the infection. And as long as the infection is mild, and in this case, half the people have no symptoms whatsoever, that's fantastic. We want people, except the people who are gonna have a serious problem, to actually get infected and develop their own immunity. In fact, that's the whole point of giving immunizations in other viral diseases, to get a lot of people to have their own immune response, their own antibodies, generated that blocks the whole network of infection and protects all of society, including the most vulnerable. So yes, 20% of of, uh, New York City people tested had the antibody, roughly. Um, And, you know, uh, that's that's great. My guess, if I had to guess, and I don't want to, I don't really want to be guessing because the guesses have been wrong, but, you know, common sense tells me that it might even be a lot higher in New York, in New York City, since, uh, you know, they're the hotbed of the world for this infection. And, you know, most people didn't get tested. That was a small sample. So we have to be careful extrapolating. That was about 3,000 people, and that, that's a tiny, tiny sample. But I think it goes along with other studies that have shown a far wider spread of 
previous infection. The antibodies are a marker of having had the infection. So we see that was true in uh, Germany, in a town in Germany. We see it's true in several different studies that there's a far broader base of people who have had the infection. That's exactly what we want. We want the people who are not going to have a serious complication to have had the infection, to develop immunity. That is the way the virus is stopped from propagating. You know what I found interesting? One of the case studies is the U.S. aircraft carrier uh, Theodore Roosevelt it looks like so far 800 of the 4,600 or so sailors tested positive, and they say 60% were asymptomatic. Only, I believe, six were hospitalized and one fatality out of 800 positive tests so far. So, A, doesn't that show generally that the fatality rate might be between 0.1%, uh, what the serology test of your institution, uh, Stanford and Santa Clara County, seem to indicate, and B, does that? Why would New York City be higher? I think yesterday's numbers would indicate more of a 0.8 percent, or is it like you said that perhaps really even a larger share of New York City has already had it? Yeah, and again, you know, lots of uh, studies have been shown that uh, really the the estimates originally of the fatality rate, the percent of people who die after getting infection, the original estimates of three, four, five percent were were grossly uh, high, and I think most people who are familiar with medical science understood that that was based on only the people who are sick enough to seek medical attention and then how many of those died. So uh, that that was sort of a a false premise to begin with. But when we see studies, not just from Stanford, but from several different places in the United States and elsewhere, the fatality rate will be much less, uh, you know, in the uh, almost certainly going to be under 1% and, and almost certainly far below that. Uh, but we don't know because we don't know the bottom number in the fraction. We don't know the denominator, but we can certainly uh, make a statement that the denominator, the percent, percent is the people who died divided by the people who got infected. The people who got infected is far, far larger than was originally anticipated. And uh, that, that means the fatality rate will be much lower. There's no question about that. That was even true in the original data coming from the Japan uh, cruise ship and elsewhere. In fact, I'm, I'm, I have the data up on my screen right now for something else. You know, it's it's sort of uh, it's it, that's been established. The fatality rate is is much much lower than people had feared. So, so there's two parts of this. There's one when you conduct a serology test and it demonstrates that the denominator of the fraction is much larger and thereby making the case fatality rate um, much lower, which is a good thing. But then there's the other element of this, which shows that it's much more ubiquitous and it has spread longer. So not just the how many have it, but the also when did it start? And what I find shocking is that six, seven weeks into this, that our government at least has not publicly put out more information on when this started. And I'm wondering if you could help us, and I know some of this is guesswork, just construct what happened. So if you look at any charts, 
they show the spiking going nuts at the beginning of March. But that was obviously because at the beginning of March, we began testing. We weren't really testing before. Now, for a living, I track immigration policy. Immigration travel, that's the number one policy that I'm known for. So I'm, I'm always paying attention to that. And I know that we have a heck of a lot of travel and a heck of a lot of immigration and foreign students, particularly coming in the second, third week of January, um, from China. I mean, perhaps more than any other country in the world. Now, we know this was in Wuhan at the minimum November 17th. So I always felt that if they're going to say that this is extremely contagious and it transmits very quickly, to me, the fact that we had 750,000 um, individuals coming in, both American businessmen and also Chinese nationals from China, um, I don't have Wuhan numbers, but I do know we have a consulate there, so there's clearly enough to warrant it, we had 750,000 from uh, December through March, and most of it was shut off in February. To me, it's inconceivable this wasn't brought in in December, January. What, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's guessing as to uh, when things are brought in. Uh, my numbers, I, I look at, by the way, are, 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 are reinforce what you just said. They're in the month of January alone of this year, 350,000 citizens of China. I'm not talking about American citizens who went to China and came back. 350,000 citizens of China in January 2020 alone came into the United States. And the number one port of entry is New York City. Uh, that sort of gives you a, a, one of the reasons why if it's 350,000 uh, people, Chinese citizens every month coming in during this infection, uh, it's sort of obvious if number one city is New York, why New York uh, got more infections. But uh, it's true that uh, we don't know exactly a lot of this about the origin of the virus. We don't know exactly when it originated because the data from coming out of China was never transparent. So uh, our best guesses are based on flawed data, including the origin and when it happens. But it is a very interesting theory, and it's purely hypothetical. If the virus was already here months and months ago, then there might indeed be a lot more uh, people who have the immunity to the virus. And is the assumption now that if you test positive for the antibodies that you you would be immune, that you wouldn't get COVID-19 again? Well, I mean, again, there's a lot that is not known. It is not definitely known how effective the, for immunity the certain uh, antibodies are. It is not known if you can get reinfected. It is not known how long the immunity lasts if there is immunity. But we don't, because we don't know everything, that does not mean we throw out all knowledge of fundamental biology. That does not mean we throw out all knowledge about this virus family, which has been around for decades. Coronaviruses have been around for decades. And so we, we make, a, you know, we make a knowledge-based analysis, even when we don't know 100% what's happening. And so it's very reasonable to say that immunity will exist after you get infected by a virus. And when we look at the data on previous coronaviruses, uh, even in virology textbooks, we see that the estimated period of immunity, by the way, is around 12 months, around a year. Some viruses, 
the immunity or an immunization gives you a lifetime protection. Other viruses, they have to be, uh, the immunity has to be reintroduced, like the flu shot every year. But, you know, coronavirus, it's presumed that the, you know, without knowing that a reasonable guess is 12 months of immunity, a reasonable guess is you get it and then you become uh, immune, but it's still being investigated. These these answers are not known. But again, I think it's most important to understand we don't know nothing about immunology. Mm-hmm. We have decades of knowledge, and we should apply that knowledge. So what I'm trying to what I'm starting to see is that p- people, you know, New York Times reporters, I'm seeing this. They're putting out um, skepticism. All right, Daniel. Okay, that that's nice. That. Clearly, more people had it in New York City and likely elsewhere, and that puts the case fatality rate under 1%, maybe well under 1%. But look, this thing is so contagious. That's what it does show. And therefore, if, if you just open up and then this thing just spreads like wildfire even more and it goes to 200 million Americans, well, even a small percentage of a fatality rate and hospitalization rate of that is, is cataclysmic. Um, so what would you say to that in terms of a plan going forward? Yeah, well, that, that's just uh, ignoring some very key facts that I outlined in the piece. We know the overwhelming majority of people have no significant risk of dying from this virus infection because the vast majority of people who die are older and people with underlying disorders. In fact, of the thousands of cases that have been fully investigated who have died, to determine if they have an underlying disorder, 99.2% had an underlying illness, and the vast majority are over 65, over 70. So we know that protecting older people also eliminates hospital overcrowding, the vulnerable at-risk people. These are the people that are highly likely, compared to the younger people, to get diseases requiring hospitalization and ICU care. So given those facts, we have a clearly defined population at risk and we should protect them. And that means issuing uh, severe restrictions, for instance, on nursing home and senior center workers, Mm. that they they have to be tested and there has to be strict regulation of who enters there for now because those people could die. We have to have strong recommendations about social distancing policy for people who are older and who have uh, high risk populations. But we also want younger, healthier people with no significant risk to be out there mingling. We want people to develop immunity. It is literally counterproductive, harmful to keep everyone in a bubble isolating the necessary social interactions that lead to population-based immunity. So we need to open up workplaces. We have to do it uh, with some prudent recommendations, strong recommendations, uh, but we don't necessarily want to imprison people. And uh, in fact, it makes no sense to imprison people Mm. inside their homes if they can just walk outside and hang out outside uh, with some necessary social distancing or at least recommended social distancing. But the, the point here is this. The focused group that is vulnerable is the group we want to protect. We don't need to protect, nor do we actually want to stop infections that are asymptomatic, mild, 
in people with no risk or no significant risk of having a serious complication. It's harmful to the end game here. So with that said, let me bring in the 800-pound gorilla. A lot of people think the 800-pound gorilla is the workplace because obviously we talk about the economy. But isn't it really the schools? Based on what you're saying, shouldn't we have the kids go back to school because they're the ultimate young population mingling with other young kids? Well, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of points about the schools. The schools have no serious risk of getting a significant uh, disease. It, do, it doesn't mean that zero children get this illness. It means that the, the exception does not disprove the rule. When you look at the New York City data, the percent of people who died who are under 18 years old is zero. Zero. You know, the percent of the, the likelihood of a hospitalization in somebody 18 is, you know, less than one one hundredth of the people who are old. So, I mean, I think it's really uh, nonsensical to cancel schools, literally nonsensical. And there's wow. no data to support that. Because that's really the antecedent to the entire chain of economic shutdown, because so many people if you say, well, maybe you could work from home, you could work even outside, but your kids are home, you're done. You're completely shut down. There's nothing you can do. And they've shut down schools for the rest of the year. What I thought was interesting is you know, I sent you an article from Israel. I've been watching this case study of a town there outside of Tel Aviv. I saw a couple of Israeli researchers um, have written about it. And it's this town that's very um, has a very high-density population a uh, very religious town, huge families living in apartment buildings together, and it's a but but therefore it's a very young population, and there was a lot of talk in Israel about this town not following rules and they're going to spread it. It's going to be Israel's Lombardy, Israel's Madrid, New York City, and the military actually blockaded it, and everyone expected that to just be a smoldering ash dumpster fire. But it turns out, I think, 10 people in total died from there. And now researchers believe there's a tremendous amount of herd immunity. And again, it's a very young population. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, on a case study like that, um, if that is a good example of herd immunity. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the details of what we did, of what they did there. Uh, sure. But uh, I would say that in, in theory, when you have a closed population like that, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, population to study and to look at what happened. I, I think that uh, it, it, it's, it's very likely that they have a higher rate, from what it sounds like, of infection going around and therefore given the benign nature of this virus for the overwhelming majority of people, they will likely have, it sounds like, a, a high rate of immunity to the virus. I mean, it remains to be seen. I don't know the data. I, I'm not really familiar with, with what they did. Sure. But certainly the point here is that we are, we're, we're making trade-offs here when we actually have a common sense targeted population to protect. And those trade-offs, are harmful to eradicating the virus. And meanwhile, something we didn't talk about that I just want to highlight here is people are dying because other medical care is not getting done. I think this is critical and it includes pediatric population. Uh, there's even a piece in the New York Times the, the other day that, that 
talked about how people are skipping their pediatric, you know, uh, well child checkups, but also their immunizations, ironically. And so, you know, again, I mean, this is so destructive. If you look at the people, I mean, I I have uh, my colleagues in Stanford have given me some of this information as well as other doctors all over the country. Uh, Acute stroke patients are not coming in to be treated. These are people that have three to six hours to get to the hospital. They're not coming in. That business is down 50 to 60%. 80% of brain surgeries are not being done. Okay, people with a heart attack, acute heart attack, are not calling the ambulance or getting to the hospital in time. Chemotherapy is being skipped, intentionally skipped. When people say non-essential procedures, non-essential surgery is being skipped, we're not talking about plastic surgery uh, for (laughs) no breast implants. Uh, We're talking about serious illness. 85% of live organ transplants are not being done. That's comparing this past 30 days to last year, the same 30-day period. It's down almost 90%. These people with, no, with needing transplants, that disease didn't disappear. These are people who are near death. Wow. So, I mean, I think that we're making a massive decision here. People are dying because of the decision. The decision not only has serious trade-offs, it is actually ignoring fundamental biology, what's being done. And then you go out a level further, you have mammograms, colonoscopies not being done, um, or just well checkups for high-risk patients, you know, diabetes patients. Uh, they might sound like well checkups, but they're very important. Um, you mentioned pediatrics. I, I just uh, had a baby uh, two weeks ago, and so far they've been functioning but we know a lot of people in the same position. Like you said, they're pushing off immunizations. It's unbelievable. Um, so we've definitely seen that. I know we're running out of time, and I want to keep you much longer. Um, just real quick, um, there's something befuddling me, and it's it, it's not really much of a public policy question, but I've never seen this with a virus before. Why does it seem like in most locations the ratio of men to women dying is almost three to one. It seems like this is really attacking men more than women. Do you have any theory for that? Yeah, no, I mean, this is sort of another one of the many unknowns here. Uh, it could be, you know, I, we, we look at the numbers from New York City and you see that more, more men die, more men are hospitalized and more men get the infection to begin with. Uh, it, it's not really known. There, I think that it just... I don't have an answer to your question, but I'm going to put it in this context. Sure. There's so much not known about so many infections, not just this infection. It's not really understood why there is a geographic variation in the flu. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of theories about the seasonal nature of even the flu, but it's really not known about the impact of temperature, the impact of humidity, how things are transmitted, why things come and go, why certain targeted uh, populations uh, are involved, like in this case. Uh, So I'm not going to guess because I really don't know. uh, But in reality, uh, it sort of highlights we don't know. There's a lot of things we in medicine don't know that doesn't paralyze us we don't panic when we make medical decisions and health policy decisions. We use our fundamental knowledge. We look at the empirical data. We don't disregard common sense, and we make a rational decision. 
So just to cap it off here before I let you go, the, the punchline of, of where we're headed, where we should be headed to, do you agree with you know something a lot of us have been putting out on this network is that with a lot of these simulations and models and the doomsday apocalypse uh, predictions, they're creating a straw man uh, false dichotomy between full lockdown and just literally going about our normal lives as if this is not taking place. What when in fact isn't most of the value add in terms of protecting vulnerable populations, slowing a real rapid spread? Isn't most of that value add between zero to common sense hygiene and distancing that everyone just out of sheer fear is voluntarily doing? And then if you but whereas if you would take it from that level to full lockdown. Is there any evidence that that really slows the spread? I think there's a very important point for the listeners here is that there is a false sort of dichotomy being presented somehow that it's either total lockdown or the other side is saying nothing should be done. That's just not true, uh, as you pointed out. The, the, this is what I and others are saying is that the, the policy the yield is about this strategic targeted protection uh, and to to make the analogy rather than total lockdown to make the analogy if you, if you need to uh fix uh, your your uh, a leak in your bathroom you can fix it by fixing the leak in the bathroom or you can fix it by knocking down the whole house and rebuilding a brand new house you still fix the leak in the bathroom but you didn't need to knock down the house. And in this case, it's, it's, that's sort of a silly example, but it's, it's far more important here to understand the harms of what we're doing here. Strategic protective strategies for the people who are sick, I mean, potentially very sick and potentially going to die, is really the point of, this, of what should be done here. We can't sacrifice everything else to... Uh, to protect every possible infection. We don't do that. That's irrational policy. It's truly shocking. I have a friend who's a member of Congress, and he was on a conference call with other House members with Dr. Fauci, and he was asked point blank, have you ever done models or simulations to try to ascertain how many people are going to die from the shutdown of vital medical care and procedures that are now being gratuitously shut down, even in non-hot spots where not only are hospitals not overrun, but uh, they don't they don't have enough work, so they're furloughing people. And he was like, "That's an interesting point." Um, and they haven't they haven't investigated that. I just I can't I can't believe it. But that's that's where we are. Um, any closing thoughts before before we uh, sew up here? Well, I think that. Uh... The, the focus here should not be on criticizing the original models or criticizing what has been done. The focus has to be done, uh, on what should be done now. We have learned a tremendous amount from the data. We do not just need to look at hypothetical mathematical projections. We have a tremendous amount of evidence here. We have things under control. We know how to proceed. And we have mobilized resources to deal with things in case things get worse. But meantime, we need to think logically and use our fundamental knowledge and rational critical thinking 
and then move forward. Very well said, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Please come back and keep us informed and updated as uh, this unfolds. Um, and folks, you could send me any questions you have for Dr. Atlas. You know, I could email him and discuss it on the show. Thanks so much and have, have a terrific weekend. Okay, you too, Daniel. Thank you. And folks, that was a real refreshing change. You know, obviously we do politics here and I really wanted a more scientific approach. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to do this more often. Let me know if you guys have any other ideas for guests or, or things like that that you want on this show. But, uh, oh man, I'm just getting the phone here. Um, here's the thing, couple of points I just want to go over. Notice how he kept going back to the point that there, there might be novel aspects to this virus and things we don't know, but you don't throw out everything you know about biology and about medicine and about science just on a whim, especially when even the initial data, certainly everything we know since it started to spread, at least openly in America, confirms that it is not that different than other coronaviruses. So I was thinking, well, what's interesting when he talks about the initial data, it all gets back to the Diamond Princess. I mean, we saw it. We saw it in February. And that was the ultimate Petri dish of elderly people on a cruise in recirculated air, I mean, it's the worst scenario you'll, you'll ever get, there were 13 deaths. Um, You know, that's the thing. So, and again, that was, I forget the median population, the median age. Uh, maybe you could look that up, but but they were they were elderly. That, that, that is your quintessential vulnerable population. And even then, the death rate was maybe 1.5% or so. So certainly among the general populations could be much lower, but but that's his point. We're not saying when we say go back to normal, we don't mean that it's literally nothing goes on. But the dumbest, most disruptive thing we're doing that has not only the least value add, but the most counterintuitive effects is shutting down schools. It makes no sense. It just makes no sense. And that way, I mean, the mental health issues you're going to have, then it frees up people to find more ways to work from home. Look, no matter what, the the virus, I, I, you know, I admit the virus is going to take a chunk out of your economy. But there's a difference between a recession and a nuclear winter making the Great Depression look like a, a the, the, the Roaring Twenties or something. That's the point. And I'm glad, you know, he also agreed with the point that there's a huge dichotomy between common sense measures, which people are already going to do voluntarily at this point, versus a total lockdown. It just makes no sense. Now, there's obviously a lot we didn't cover, but you know, I don't want to keep him longer than that. So again, you could let me know if you have any more questions. You could let me know if um, you have any other guests that you think I should pursue and have on the show. Um, but certainly a lot of very important points. And that's the thing. It's like the more information that comes out, the less these governors and people are phased by them. But unfortunately, the less the president sticks by his own position. 
That's the thing. It just makes no sense. There is a baseline number of deaths you're going to have from this, and nobody has shown any ability to stop that. Nobody has demonstrated that. And the big question is, what happens next fall? Nobody's answering that. If you don't develop herd immunity. Oh, Daniel, vaccine. Do you really think we're going to have a vaccine by then? That's the big question. So kudos to someone like Dr. Atlas for willing to put himself out there. You know, it's one thing for someone like me. That's what I do for a living, political combat. But, you know, when you have the entire medical community or most of the medical community really bought into a certain approach, it's often hard to be a dissenting view. And again, why is why do state legislatures and Congress, why are they not holding hearings? Why haven't they been holding endless hearings for six to seven, eight weeks already with people like that? Have people from different sides, schools of thoughts, different backgrounds, and ask some of these questions. Compare some of the observations we have. That's always been my contention from day one. Why would you automatically presuppose and double down indefinitely on the most severe crushing of liberty, of mental health, physical health, economy, jobs, everything, I mean, you, would, you wouldn't do that until you are 100% sure that's what you need to be doing. And yet, we're close to 100% sure that's not what we need to be doing. That's what's so befuddling about this. But it's like you look at Republicans and you don't, you know, they kind of question a little bit, but then they vote for whatever the Democrats are doing. There is no equal and opposing force. I don't know what it's going to take. But anyway, we're going to power through this. We're going to keep building our movement. Go to Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary at Facebook. Sign up to be one of our state-by-state Paul Revere's to report. And that's what we're going to do. We're We're going to spy on them. They're going to take names. Well, we're going to take their names. And remember who was a corona fascist. And ensure their career is over with. But I got to run now. Um, kind of crazy with all the tantrums in the background. <laughs> Speaking of schools being closed, but anyway, um, let me know your feedback. D Horowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at, at RM Conservative on Twitter. You could also follow our Facebook fans at Citizen Sanctuary. That's C I T Z Sanctuary on Twitter. Have a terrific weekend. God bless y'all. And may we all stay safe.